How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hunting Public Podcast, powered by Dakota Lithium. Now, I've got a lot of updates in this intro, so bear with me here, but the first one is you're gonna be hearing a lot of that powered by Dakota Lithium when you're listening to the podcast. And to kind of introduce Dakota Lithium, for those that don't know, they create the products that we use when we're trying to charge all of our equipment when we're out on the road. Our favorite way to camp on hunting trips is to stay mobile. And because we're staying mobile, a lot of times we're staying in primitive campsites where there's no electricity and we have a lot of gear that we need to keep charged. So over the last couple of years, we've been testing a bunch of products from Dakota Lithium and it's been a real game changer for living on the road. So if you do any traveling to hunt or maybe you just have a hunting camp that doesn't have a really good power source, the Dakota Lithium products are a great option to stay charged up when you're out hunting. Looking back on all the trips that we've had since we first started THP, it's pretty amazing how far we've come as far as understanding the best and most efficient ways to charge our gear. Back in the day, we'd drive to McDonald's or plug into a place at the library or something, and that worked pretty well. But after a while, we were just spending more time and resources trying to get to these places versus just having a charging source in our vehicle. So in the backseat of my truck at all times, I've got a Dakota Lithium Power box 135 that thing's pretty amazing I'm able to charge my laptop with it I can keep all my camera batteries charged and really anything that I need charged along the way which this day and age is quite a lot of things so it's pretty handy to have that along with us and if the power box 135 is too much for you they also have a power box 10 which is nice for smaller things like cell phones some cameras like GoPros and external batteries that we use to recharge our phones as well so I just think that in general if you're the type that enjoys traveling to hunt, primitive camping, but you want an efficient power source, the Dakota Lithium products are awesome for that. They also make a bunch of batteries that you can put into your boat and stuff like that, but for us, the main use is staying charged up while on the road. So we're pretty excited to be working with them and we think they have awesome products. All right, next update. We just launched our THP podcast YouTube channel where you can now watch all of these audio podcasts in a video version as well. I'm super excited about it. Keith Robinson and I are gonna be doing a lot of the producing for that. And if you guys ever have any guests, as always, that you'd like to hear, feel free to send us a message and recommend anybody that you'd like to hear from. With that being said, a common question that I've seen in the comments is, are we still gonna be posting the audio versions to the platforms that we have in the past? And the answer is yes. The reason that I've got behind on posting the audio podcast is because I had knee surgery two weeks ago, and before that, I was just trying to get my ducks in a row, trying to make sure that I was ready to launch the video version of the podcast. And I wanted to save some of the new content that way we could launch it on the video site before people listen to it in the audio version but starting now every Tuesday I'm gonna be uploading video podcasts as well as an audio version and for the next few weeks I'm gonna be posting multiple audio podcasts that way I can catch up and get all the ones that I've posted video versions on YouTube of back on the audio platforms as well so we'll get caught up here I apologize I was kind of down and out there for a while and if you type in on YouTube, the Hunting Public Podcast should be able to find our new channel. And then the other cool thing about our new channel is we're going to be doing live podcasts as well, which I'll also upload onto the audio platforms. 
We're excited about the live podcasts because we'll be able to interact with you guys. If you have questions, you'll be able to just hop on there while we're recording, type in your question, and we're going to try to answer as many of those questions as we can while we're recording. I'm probably missing some things. If you have any more questions, leave a comment on YouTube, send us a message, and I'll hopefully be able to give you a good answer. Another update from our friends at Go Wild. They're giving away a UTV. So until March 31st, for every member you get to join Go Wild, you get an entry for a chance to win a Polaris UTV. If you're a Go Wild member already, if you go to your profile and hit share Go Wild, you'll get a unique share link. Then you can send that link to your friends. And for every new member that you get to sign up to join Go Wild through your link, you'll get an additional entry for a chance to win. If you're not a Go Wild member yet, you can enter for a chance to win by creating a Go Wild account. Then you'll automatically get an entry. And then once you're a member, you'll be able to do that same thing by going to your profile, hit share Go Wild. So in a nutshell, the more people you get to join Go Wild, the better chance you have to win. So better get to work because Time's running out. The last day to get an entry for a chance to win is March 31st. For more details, you can go to timetogowild.com forward slash UTV. Along the lines of cool giveaways, we've also teamed up with our friends at Vortex to give away an all expenses paid turkey hunt with the THP crew. Aside from hitting the turkey woods with all of us, lodging, licenses, Vortex gear, and $1,000 for travel is all included. The hunt's going to be filmed for a future episode on our YouTube channel, and entering is easy. All you got to do is head to thp.vtxnation.com, enter your email, and you're done. Stay tuned to Vortex and THP social platforms for more info, and be on the lookout in upcoming THP Turkey Tour videos, where we'll also be sharing the link. Good luck to everybody that enters. And finally, if you have any interest in picking up a new bow this off-season, we can help you save 10% off of all bear equipment if you use the code THP10. In this episode, we're going to be talking about habitat. Keith and I sat down with Keith's brothers, Ben and Alex, and then our friend Larry, and we were talking about DIY projects, the importance of burning, and how to overcome some of the hurdles of getting started on some of these projects. I'm really excited about this because these guys have done awesome things on this property. I finally got a chance to walk Larry's property. I'd never actually been there before and it's just amazing to see the carrying capacity for deer, turkey, rabbits, and I think there's a lot to be learned from these guys. Also, if you don't want to just listen to this podcast and you want to watch, we have this one going up today as well on our YouTube channel. So appreciate you guys tuning in. Thanks for bearing with me on the updates and let's get to talking about habitat. All right, guys, so we are in Ohio. I'm hanging out with my buddies, Larry, Ben, Keith, and Alex. And we're on Larry's property today. This is my first time here is this weekend, and we're doing some habitat projects. And we are specifically burning this weekend. That's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. And I guess, Larry, for people that don't know, and then everybody else can pitch in as well, why don't you talk about this property and kind of some of the changes that you've made in a quick outline, I guess. Yeah, just a family farm, uh, Southern Ohio. So we got a ton of trees. There was a, some old pastures that we converted over to native meadows. Um, just a small recreational family farm type thing. Um, so yeah, we're, but you mentioned the burning, uh, this time of year, we use fire as a tool to just clean out excess material in the woods as well as in the fields. Then that creates some different habitat. 
that all different types of wildlife are able to utilize in the spring. So we're just doing that and yeah, it's a good time of year to you get that benefit right before turkey season. So turkeys are attracted to it, which is just another awesome, awesome benefit to the burning. Yeah, and we've done podcasts in the past talking about more of the details. I believe, I don't know, probably a year ago, roughly, we did one where we talked about some of the improvements that have been made and more of the specific stories, I guess, that have have taken place here and the benefits that you're seeing from a hunting standpoint, mostly. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, in general, this is something that we're all becoming more and more interested in to the point where, like, Larry's got his own business, Native Ohio Landscapes. Ben is kind of transitioning into doing this full-time as well. Mm-hmm. And then Keith and Alex and me are kind of just helping that in whatever specialty ways that we can, yeah. right? So Ben, I guess talk quickly then about uh, what you're doing and what, yeah, your changes. I guess I think that's kind of cool, and yeah. we'll get the ball I've, rolling uh, there. Got two more weeks in my job with the state. Put my two weeks in a couple of days ago. Um, yeah, starting my own business, can work with my buddies full time, and we're all independent contractors, so we kind of help each other out with different projects. Um, planning to mainly focus on you know management planning and trying to help landowners efficiently manage their forest and grassland ecosystems and um, really try to bring fire to Ohio which doesn't happen a whole lot mm-hmm. particularly fire within the woods it's kind of the niche that I'd like to get us into we got a good group of guys and that's really the the setback for a lot of people I think is just having dependable friends that are that you trust and that are able to make their own schedules too Mm-hmm. So we brought a lot of people in on, you know, just working here with Le- at Larry's property and getting more people experience and more people interested in working together on habitat just fires me up. Yeah. And you've had a unique amount of just like burn experience that you've been able to kind of just like educate the entire group to some degree to just like kind of bring that group together, which has been extremely beneficial as for the entire group in general. And I think that's something we, you know, have taken advantage of having someone that's that experience that has helped us out to get to this point. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a process of like multiple years of doing these things to practice and doing these practice runs on different properties. One of them being here, one of them being at your guys' parents' property, Mm -hmm. and um, then your buddy Kyle's property, stuff like that, where you're doing these projects and you guys are learning together and now it's like, okay, We've got this crew established. Our confidence is high because now we've got rep, you know, a bunch of reps in, and I think that, like you said, is probably a big setback. But I think, kind of, from a outside perspective, if you're wanting to get into this type of stuff, the benefits obviously are for wildlife and habitat. But what I think is really cool about what you guys have done is you've created this little friend community where it's like hey every weekend we're just going to go and tackle this project and it's a cool way to hang out you know obviously we like to hunt and do that from like a hunting camp standpoint but you guys have land management camp or fire camp we keep yeah yeah, we keep joking that this is like habitat weekend right we're all just camping out here and we're putting boots on the ground creating habitat and in turn we're making the landscape better for the wildlife forests healthier creating more diversity and that's something that's just missing in a lot of the country Mm -hmm. right and 
your guys's niche is Ohio. Yeah. Fortunately for us, it's just like Larry was saying yesterday. It's just like this is our hobby. Like we just have a blast out here with our friends and we're just like hanging out for the weekend, a couple of days out on the farm, and you're just like doing a pretty crazy amount of work and still just having a fun time doing it with all your friends. We had like six chainsaws running out here yesterday. It's like six guys, people just coming to the farm to hang out and help out and. It's pretty unique, pretty awesome. It's like a co-op we have going. <laughs> yeah. We'll be here, and then we'll yeah. jump over to like Kyle's place for a weekend, and everyone's just putting in time in different places. Yeah. Meanwhile, though, I think it's what's funny is everybody hunts kind of different areas. Like, yeah. we pretty much, I would say, every bit of 80, 90% of the hunting that we do as a group is on public land. Mm -hmm. And some of us are exclusively, like Larry hunts some different properties too that are outside. And, and I think that's what's kind of cool about it. It's not even the only places that we participate in hunting. Yeah. If, if not almost, we don't, in a way we don't hunt these as places. As much for how much work we're like putting into these places. It's like a little management playground out here. You just get to do the work and see it happen, but you have all these different places you can still jump around to. And I think that what's exciting if you're listening to this is if you have property or you have a friend that has property, you can do exactly what we're talking about in your area as well as a group with your friends mm -hmm. yeah and it's desperately needed i mean you start little businesses doing this it's so needed like every time someone has come on and helped it's helped everybody just compounds mm -hmm. so now we've got like what five six of us now in business for ourselves and obviously ben's coming in at a critical time because a lot of these projects these habitat projects we do they they take some like heavy work to start out um, like a lot of chainsaw cutting or herbicide stuff but then within a few years the, the next step is they need to burn. Mm -hmm. And we just, that hasn't been like, we've we've kind of just addressed it as it came. And then now you're at this perfect point with like your state job at the time where you're like, you know what, it makes sense now. Yeah. And we like, it's the perfect time. We have projects now that we need. He's kind of the missing piece right now mm -hmm. for us too. Yeah. yeah. And I think countrywide, just again, the issue is and where this type of work is needed is because of, like a lack of education on what a healthy forest or healthy landscape and what, what is native, what is not, like that, those things just haven't been communicated. And, and in the podcast, we've been talking about that more and more. And I mean, like I said, we've talked about this property specifically at length. We've had Ben and Larry and Keith talking about different things on the podcast many a times at this point. But I just really think that when the con the more the conversation happens the more people can get excited about it more fired up about it and then putting you know the work on the ground to create better habitats and that is going to help your hunting inevitably like everything that we're focusing on is to help the wildlife and the health of the forest but that's inevitably going to help your hunting and i know that people that are listening to the hunting public podcast aren't necessarily coming here to improve their bird watching mm. or get more you know uh i don't know diversity on the ground necessarily for any reason other than hunting so you want to do it because you want to improve your hunting and i think that that's a starting point but ultimately there's so many benefits to this and it's and it's stuff that will benefit everybody long term as well yeah i think i think a good way to put it is 
we've we've all mentioned this probably in other podcasts, but you're just you're managing ecosystems rather than like for a specific species because mm-hmm. there's just so many. I mean, everything's connected, and so you have you know insects. The plant community is the base of everything, at least around here, and then the insects feed off of that. The birds feed on the insects. The mammals feed on the birds. The mm-hmm. whole it's all based on a diverse plant community at the beginning of it all. Yep. The base, and then if you're managing that, you're improving for sure deer, but every other species that goes up the chain from there. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. I was gonna say trying to focus on shifting the focus from plants being what food source will be the food for deer, and I'm gonna plant what they need to eat. If you do that for every single animal in the ecosystem, you're going to be chasing a moving target. I mean, you need yeah. the ecosystem to work as its own with all all the diversity that it naturally needs, and it will provide for all the animals that you want. Mm-hmm. And the good hunting is typically going to be a side effect of that 100% of the time. Like, when you improve the ecosystem, the hunting is going to become better. Yeah. It's just, you got to put in some work. Yeah. So one of the main reasons we're burning right now on this property, yesterday, the conditions kind of surprised all of us. As always, this happens. We're all of a sudden down here working and pretty much out of nowhere, we're like, hey, we got burn weather. And that's literally, it was a scramble from that point. Okay, who's got this? Who can bring this? And we basically pulled everything together. We had to pick up a backpack sprayer. But anyways, that's how we usually start the season. So we got into this little spot yesterday and we did it pretty much just a grass burn or a meadow burn. There's fine fuels there. So under kind of like, not the most amazing conditions we knew that would burn and that was sweet zach you got to get your hands onto some serious fire in fact the grassiest spot on the farm you legit got to burn which was so sweet yeah Yeah. um so that ridge that that particular area that was basically for you know to clean off that meadow and set back woody encroachment and Mm -hmm. just basically maintain that as a functioning meadow and it's Mm -hmm. also really convenient because turkeys can use that for uh, you know they can bring their poults there they can feed there they can strut there it's just Great to do right before turkey season. But. They're definitely going to strut there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. soon as we lit it, it was like, well, who's shooting the turkey here this spring? Because yeah. there's definitely going to be one strutting right here. Yeah. So that's absolutely a benefit is even to improve your hunting right now or in two months or whatever. It's like, it's definitely going to be better. Yeah. So anyway. So that was the first place we chose to start. We, we just needed to burn that one. It was on our list. Um, so the other one we're hoping to get into, I'll let Ben unpack this one a little bit more because it's, it's kind of like a more of a forestry type of burn. And this is two really common scenarios landowners are going to have. You either got a meadow or you got timber. And is that timber suitable to fire? Ben, you want to just kind of unpack the wildlife opening where it's at successionally and what we did there? And- yeah. So fires, it's an important maintenance tool to the projects that we've done so like you you create this disturbance so you're mimicking you know tornadoes back in the day knocking a bunch of trees down makes it pretty hellish good place for deer to bed Mm -hmm. but as time moves along you get you know different species start to reoccupy that and it's going to become a forest system again so the top of this ridge we took was the first place we cut on this property hold on before you get too far yeah the reason that we're trying to have different um, types of forest and have this early successional habitat is because prior to humans, these disturbances were happening naturally, and therefore there were all these different levels of age classed forest, I guess, right? Like you have you have young forest and you have mature forest and you have you know middle aged forest, and all of that is happening naturally mm-hmm. because there's less people now in the future. And the future being, you know, present day, I suppose, it's like 
we have all this previous disturbance and now a lot of the things that were disturbed are being controlled. So we're not allowing the disturbance. So how I initially learned about this topic and how fire was not all bad was when I was in college. I took this class called Americans in Their Forests. And it was an awesome class, taught me so much and opened my eyes to so many things that I never realized when I was a kid that fire was necessary for a lot of these species. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's so, it's so, um, we're misinformed with, by, by a lot of things because when we see on TV, you know, there's forest fires in Colorado or in California or Montana, that it's this huge problem. So therefore, when people hear fire, it's really intimidating from uh, the perspective of like, you're going to create the fire. That's like, well, that's bad. We don't want fire. But in reality, there's a way to do this with prescribed fire that actually benefits the forest. You're not killing the forest. You're not burning it to the ground. You're just putting a small, you know, really relatively um, brief cool, disturbance. yeah, brief disturbance in like a cool fire. It's not the, getting out of hand where yeah, it's burning and killing consuming everything. Consuming the fuel that if you do not consume and it, it continues to pile up, you will have a more destructive fire. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I didn't realize when I was younger is because we suppressed fire for so long, like out west and you know, even in the eastern forest, where it doesn't happen as much, we've built up this fuel load that when it finally does light, it's like a bunch of matchsticks and it just gets out of control. And those are the ones that we see on TV where we have no control over it. They're taking up, you know, thousands and millions of acres or whatever. They're burning entire mountains. Those, yes, are problems, but the reason that's happening is because we've suppressed it for so long. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in that class is had we had a different approach to this from the beginning and something that we're trying to slowly, we're, not, we're never going to do it overnight, we're probably not even going to do it in our lifetime, is try to use fire as a tool to keep forests healthy instead of suppressing it to say, you know, like, we're going to suppress, 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 and then we lose control of it when it does happen. Because inevitably, it's going to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, so back, I think, to, back to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so I think our, our goal in a lot of this, this burning is not like, we're not burning it. We're like, yeah, we're going to shoot turkey on. I mean, that's sweet, and that's what we are doing. But we're mimicking, we're trying to get a lot of this land back to the historical, at least the best we know, what historical ecosystem would have been there. So, like, this part of the eastern forest, you had a lot of, like, woodland and then, you know, on some flatter spots, maybe even more of a grassy savanna prairie type. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's certain areas that we're managing for more of the closed canopy, deeper forest that would have had probably historically not burned as intensely or as often. Mm -hmm. So we're just trying to mimic and by using fire, mimic these disturbances to try to bring back these plant communities. So the important thing is that in the woodland, the savanna, the prairie and all those different ecosystems, there's like there's an herbaceous understory. And you lose that in these eastern forests. If you go in and you cut all these trees down, you haven't created an herbaceous understory. And herbaceous, I mean grassy, forbs, wildflowers. You just get woody regeneration that pops up because that's what's established there. And fire hasn't killed that for 30 or 40 or 60 years in here. So without adding fire back into it, you really, you're, you're never going to create an early successional plant community that has those, that herbaceous understory. 
unless you do some drastic changes like so diversity is limited immediately as a result just speaking in terms of literal species on that site the difference Mm -hmm. yeah that was something i was going to add just you were saying how like out west how we've suppressed fire and all of a sudden then it gets out of control where almost kind of in contrast in the east we've and because of logging practices we've removed fire from the landscape we've removed these flint these you know fire dependent species from the landscape to the point where fire is like becoming difficult to run in a lot of forest mm-hmm. areas where it was previously okickery where it like should be able to burn and now it's yeah you can't even burn it it's so unhealthy and so yeah invasive species are driving that real bad and i think a mentality that's easy to jump on board with for a lot of people and i don't necessarily blame anybody because i might have been this way because of other influences in my life before I had this class that I brought up is to keep the land natural, you just let it grow and just let it be. And that is not true. It's too late because we've already impacted it so much. Not us, but the generations before us, you know, back in the 1800s, 1900s, early 1900s. Even the Native Americans. Yeah, that's something that I think people need to also take into account is we are part of the landscape as human beings. And for tens of thousands of years, we have been interacting with these species and interacting with the landscape. So to say that that's not natural is ignorant in my eyes, honestly, because we evolved alongside these Mm -hmm. animals that we are currently living alongside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... If you let a forest just grow naturally, it's it's limiting the diversity. So a place that I know has this mentality is in an area of New York. Mm-hmm. They, they have this forever wild. It's, it's like kind of the law there, forever wild. We're just going to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you've got this forest that kind of sucks for for wildlife and diversity. The goal of the people that, created this idea of forever wild was not to limit diversity from a plant and you know animal birds whatever insect it it wasn't to limit the diversity that was never the goal Mm -hmm. but because of that that's what they're doing and i think that the reason we bring this stuff up and we just keep driving it home i mean we're probably going to just keep doing this forever is keep driving these things home is because the conversation about how things are done can be changed and we can start to have a positive impact instead of just being like, well, we're not going to do anything or we're going to suppress fire, like all these things. We can't change it overnight. We can't just all of a sudden let fire burn out west and just let it go nuts. But it's like if you try to take sections and burn it, like you could decrease the intensity of a wildfire Mm -hmm. and ultimately have a healthier forest because of it instead of just, you know, letting it burn down. But, I mean, there's all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of issues, I suppose, but amongst ourselves as hunters too, trying to communicate this with different non-hunter groups or friends or whatever, I think is also important Mm -hmm. because, we, we have to shift the mentality a little bit, and that's kind of the goal with all of this. And we're not doing it to make the land, you know, to cut down all the trees. We're not doing it to, like, hurt anything. We're really trying to... Making it more productive. Yeah, Making trying it more to productive. take responsibility. Take, rather than trying to step back and expect nature to figure it out and live alongside us that has drastically changed the mm-hmm. environment, 
we could actually just take responsibility for making the environment good. We have a lot of knowledge about how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so rather than hoping that it works out, let's make it work out. Yeah. That kind of goes back to even this farm and the goals here. Timber production, you know, not, not necessarily for revenue, but just for a healthy forest. But timber production, wildlife production, like what Alex is saying, is just like, yeah, we do that here and we re- reap the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. We harvest trees. We yes. harvest more wildlife. It's just like... It's like farming at its finest, except sustainable, regenerative farming. And Alex, yesterday morning, Alex loves to play devil's advocate. So yesterday we were talking about this and we were talking about how just educating, you know, each other and having these conversations, how beneficial that is and like how can we, you know, go beyond hunters, you know, non-hunters, for example, that are landowners that you know, maybe only want to get money out of it, a land from the timber sale or whatever. Like, there's a way to balance all of this, I guess. And you yesterday were saying, well, what if somebody, you know, they don't care about wildlife or they don't care about hunting. They just want to get their money for, you know, the ha- the hay on the field yeah. or they want to just get, the, you know, or sometimes they don't even want to get any money at all, but at the same time, they want to do something to help the environment. And they're kind of barking up the wrong trees in a lot of instances because they have acreage or in their backyard, mm-hmm. literally, that they could improve the world with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's simple. I guess coming from that, how do like smaller landowners or just like general hunters that have access to hunting property start to like move forward with those goals that we were just talking about yeah i mean i think number one is good advice and sound advice is you know we can sit here and talk about everything on a podcast but your situation your property is going to be unique obviously everybody's property is unique so consulting you know either your free probably your free resources first and then you know getting into people that can help put that plan together for you whether that means hired out work or contracted out work and when um, I hear free resources, what does that mean to me? You well, know, like, it's going to depend on what your state is. I mean, a lot of states have, you know, quail forever people. They have, you know, state wildlife biologists. They have state foresters that can come out. They'll help There's, you. They'll teach you trees. I mean, they'll help you t- yeah. ID trees, ID plants, look for invasive species. Those are definitely free resources, just like base land management. You can get those resources. Yeah. And it's so amazing we have that. In yeah. And that's something that gets, I think, everybody excited, right? Yeah. That's, like, hey, that's free. That's yeah. info that I can get for free for free direct education of my property no cost to me yeah yeah so that's going to look different in whatever your state is but those resources are definitely out there and i mean to me that that's where it always makes sense to start because you're going to want multiple opinions on how to put together what you want out of your property but the number one thing is just what are your goals and that's very hard for some people to come up with and those people can really help you know, get that out of you, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody's goals are going to look different. Your time you're able to spend there is going to look different. Goals so, change too. Yeah. Goals change. Uh, you know, people die or move away. Properties move around. Property goals change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, figuring that out first, I think is super important and being honest about all those things, how much time, how much money, you know, really can you spend on a project? And that's going to help you decide whether or not you do things DIY with a group of friends or you hire a workout. Um, but ultimately what you probably should do is what is get the work done somehow. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, know. get the ball rolling because these are, I think, projects. Well, I guess what's exciting about it is they're projects that you can do on a weekend. 
mm-hmm. and then two years down the road, you're going to really start to see benefits. And, and all of them are staged up a little bit different, but just from what we did yesterday, mm-hmm. we had the chainsaws running and then we did the burn. It's like, we're going to see the results of that for a while. Mm-hmm. When I come back in a couple of years or something, we'll be like, oh yeah, that's where we were, you know, burning. This is where we were cutting the trees down. And I think that's exciting from that standpoint too, where it's kind of intense hands-on for a relatively short time period. And then you kind of hands off again. And I just think that that's what's cool about it. So like, like to answer Keith's question about what, how a person can, let's just take fire for, as an example here, that's a practice that we're obviously promoting, um, that a lot of people should look into if it makes sense in your area and you're not going to be able to smoke a hospital or something out (laughs) down the road. (laughs) Yeah. There's not some properties is just not going to work very well, but establishing what the ecosystems are that can burn and that need fire and then trying to figure out a way to build, you know, pretty permanent lines around that I think is super important. Um, and making those in areas that make sense. Um, because like yesterday, we just, we already had the lines done because a month ago we came in and we spent a couple hours and they're making those lines. That prep work we did then made us able to do that tomorrow and do the TSI at the same time. So having a little forward thinking about how to set up your your access, your you know burn lines in particular, and keeping those from year to year. Um, and those can be trails too. Yeah. Just all around mm-hmm. walking trails for the property. Yeah. I think also just keeping in mind that like everything you're doing is just compounding in some way. Like even if it doesn't seem like a lot and you're like, man, I don't know. It's just like, this is tough. It's just like the more, more time you spend not doing it, the more you're looking back and just like, man, if I would have just like taken that weekend, taken that three hours to do that thing, then like I could be seeing those benefits right now. But then you just keep like not doing it. It's kind of like applying for uh, Arizona big game points, right? It's like, Today, I don't want to spend the money to do it, but in five years, it's going to be nice when I got five preference points. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. how I think of it. It yeah. really is. It's yeah. like, yeah, I don't want to do it There's necessarily. Certain- like, oh, I don't have the time, or I'll make excuses to not do it. But then if I were to have just done it, then all of a sudden, five years has gone by, and you're like, wow. Yeah, yeah that's, on awesome. that, that's on those people, too. I mean, if you choose to take no action... I mean, just you're going to get out of it what you put into it mm-hmm. is the bottom line. And yep. the forest is going in the wrong direction without your help. Like yeah. that bad. <laughs> yeah. Think of it fast. There's a lot of things that you can, there's a lot of things you can buy land management wise, or there's a lot of things in just hunting, let's say that you can buy. But the one thing that you cannot buy is time. And you need to do these projects as ASAP so that that time can be built in. Like yeah. it's, it's always working against kind of like inflation. Like you're always working against a curve yeah and i, th- I think that's like, what pe- a lot of people need to realize is the decline aspect of a lot of the biodiversity loss in invasive species that like it's a problem that's not just oh m- maybe I'll, I'll get around to improving it but it'll just stay how it is if i don't and that's mm-hmm. not true so i think that's something we need to realize is that you are like you said it's like you're, like you're fighting inflation. It's like we have encroaching problems. And so, like, if you don't do anything, it's definitely getting worse. Mm-hmm. And it's going to keep getting harder and harder. Like, specifically, we were at that, a property a couple of days ago. It was, like, a 50-acre property, pretty, like, average-size hunting property. It had been clear-cut, and it was, like, productive and great hunting up to a certain point. And then the guide was just like, ah, hunting's starting to decline at a certain point. And, like, we are getting in there, and it was like the forest was canopy was closing up it was like unproductive understory and like things were going in a downhill direction but it's still at the point where 
in that situation, you could use fire as a tool to go in there and kind of like reset it. Yeah, just like then you can get the ball rolling on your maintenance projects where if you don't do that, all of a sudden another 10 years goes by, you blink your eyes and you're like, I got to get in here and cut 20 acres of the chainsaw if I want to do any difference because all of a sudden the, you know, things things change quickly. Yeah, and it's funny looking back to the way I viewed things when I was younger. This property will be awesome for forever. Yeah. And that's not... True. In our lifetime, you know, every decade that goes by, it's another pretty big shift to where things change a lot. And you guys are even talking, like on this property, for example, about just two years down the road, how resetting things again is going to improve it and kind of keep it um, staying productive in the way that you want it to be. So you have to be proactive. But the one thing, too, that I kind of touched on a second ago is, a lot of these things, if you're organized and you have plans and you have people like your friends, everybody's got hunting buddies and, you know, spending time with people hunting, I think, or most people at least choose to do that. If that's the case, and you can work as a team. And if you put one weekend into this, you can get a heck of a lot of things done in two days. And then, you know, you kind of got yourself set up for years down the road just from a weekend of work. Now... You're gonna be. It's gonna have to be more than a weekend of work, but in general, you know, if you have that time and stay organized, you can do these things. And you guys have clearly done a really good job of that here so and you, in other places, I guess. So Zach, you're telling me if you put habitat on the ground on a property that you think wildlife will use it? No, I know. <laughs> I, I know that's true. I've been walking around here, so this is um, the time of my life. I don't know exactly when you're watching this, but I've currently, as we're recording, have a torn ACL, so I'm having to take it pretty easy. And these guys have a lot more chainsaw experience than me, so while they were doing the chainsaw, and I was kind of slowly scouting my way around, and to see the forest that's healthy compared to unhealthy forests that I typically hunt on public land. Mm-hmm. It's night and day difference how the wildlife is using it. So what are some things specifically that you were seeing in there? Because I know your hands are showing some cuts on them. <laughs> we were just looking at Zach's hands after he uh, got done crawling through some buck beds here on the farm over the last day or so. He's sh- completely shredded. Looks like he got in a cat fight. But that's, that's a result of a healthy forest. Yep. Native blackberry right there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just in general, the understory has so much more going on. We've talked about the blackberry um, a lot in this particular property. That's something that I notice. And when you have that understory, the deer have the cover to where they feel safe. The turkeys have the cover from a nesting standpoint. You have rabbits and stuff that can tuck down into those little brushy, grassy areas. So in general, there's just more cover. But along with that, there ends up being more food. There's still oak trees and stuff that are dropping acorns up in these thicker areas, but I guess how that compares to a lot of public land that I've seen across the country is when you get into a forest, everything ends up being mature, and you can go for miles and miles every single ridge. There's no disturbance, and therefore the understory is just completely clear. And I think that that can be aesthetically pleasing, Mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of where we've got hung up in general, in the present day mindset is, man, this timber is beautiful. Like you guys have explained that up here, 
the landowner beforehand used to mow. Like <laughs> what you can see in the background of these cameras, the landowner used to mow that and there was um, walnut trees right up in there. Mm. There and, was about that spot we took out, what, 10 trees, Ben? Oh, yeah. 10 or 12 big trees. And yeah, it was mowed pasture grass. Yeah. Straight up with tall so, trees. So underneath that, there's no habitat diversity there's no wildlife diversity now you can look up there and that's a world where you can picture turkeys nesting rabbits running around in brush piles deer bedding um variety of you know just other birds and species and therefore you get the hawks you get the i mean you get it all man and yeah. i think that bobcats like crazy lately yeah. even yeah and i think right that there. when comparing that to tons of acreage of public land they're just a lot of times isn't any diversity on it or very limited. And I think what's so cool about it is you can take a small property, in this case we've got 80 acres, and you can make it hunt way bigger than 80 acres because there's cover. Mm -hmm. So also along the lines of answering your question, what's something I notice is that just one little ridge here yeah. hunts so big. You can put multiple different ambush points on just one ridge where they're, on this there's like, what you were talking about, there's 13 or something. 13 points. points. There's probably, what, three or four big ones, but off that there's secondaries. Secondaries. Yeah. Bowls and little, yeah, just like terrain pockets that just creates it's way more vast when you can just separate and chunk up the property and just little diverse pockets and then when you've got all that cover the deer feel safe in there and they can the holding capacity the carrying capacity goes up mm -hmm. and i think that's just a major difference that i see we get to harvest more yeah yeah and ultimately the more that we do that across the landscape even on a private land scale even though i hunt public land if we're doing this on private land, we're just making things better and getting these production areas, I guess, where ultimately more wildlife can thrive. There's always going to be the unhealthy forest, right? There's always going to be somebody that neglects things yeah. or just, you know, has goals that aren't necessarily um, balanced. Mm -hmm. Maybe they only want to clear cut it and, you know, get it burnt down to the ground, take all the trees out and whatever, and then they move on. And then nobody's going to necessarily continue to manage that. But if we can, again, as hunters, try to do this on as many different places, no matter what the scale, it's going to improve things. And I just think that um, on the public land side of things, we just unfortunately don't have the control. We can't control that. We can't go do a burn or do a timber stand improvement project on our own necessarily as a public. Like, I can't do that myself so i just think that helping friends do it on a place even if i'm not even going to hunt there i think is the the cool thing and yeah i guess i'm getting kind of long-winded but probably ways yeah i was going to say something about that to people like Look at the, sorry i interrupt you the private land percentage though is so high so don't oh. overlook that yeah, yeah. Say. i was going to say just people who don't have access to the private land maybe they are a public land hunter they live in a city or whatever and they're just like they want to get into it I'm sure there's ways you can volunteer volunteer time for like a Pheasants Forever organization mm -hmm. or like something like that where you can put some time into something to see something grow from that because it is extremely fulfilling to watch that, to like watch something grow from something you did. Yeah. <laughs> it's fulfilling for me to see what you guys have done. Like I had a black, my, my favorite thing I've done in quite a while was walking around on that ridge 
and look at deer sign just because it's like these guys made this yeah and you've been hearing stories about it for years now too and just to be able to yeah watch how productive it has been from just a hunting perspective it's just wild what else did you notice then zach so we've got the blackberries the understory anything else just in general when you're cruising through there i think that it's cool to see the cover again but then also having so much food there's still trees dropping acorns Mm -hmm. so it's not like this is a clear cut this isn't a disturbance that's so extreme that there's you know no trees there anymore there's still a forest that is producing food for the deer and um, also cover that's producing food for the deer but then um, something else I guess I noticed is the ability to and this is just very different from a public land situation is this ability to manipulate things to set it up for yourself to hunt really effectively Mm -hmm. without disturbing much and Mm -hmm. kind of manipulating the deer movement and your approach in a way that things are safe i guess and i just that's just different and that's just something that i well there's a huntability factor with a lot of the thinning you're seeing that's mid-story thinning Mm -hmm. that the first thing you're doing you're thinning out excess trees in the mid-story is making massive shooting lanes across these whole valleys and the whole property so Mm -hmm. you're like wait you can thin out all the extra trees make shooting lanes that you can then hunt like 10 times more area like if you're talking like gun season or something Mm -hmm. and put that much more sunlight on the ground too because that's what made that possible up there that much vegetation response is just like having a woodland with some open canopy just like to have sunlight to to where things can just start to actually grow that's biomass is actually within reach of the animals that's the thing you and it's all trees and everything is just up there and it doesn't hit the ground nothing can eat that on the ground no no animals can eat that until it hits the ground dead it's just like so you need to have some stuff on the ground for even if it's not the thing that you're interested in eating you're like oh it's just bugs that eat a plant why would i care about that well something's eating that bug <laughs> Turkey and is. something's eating <laughs> yeah. that yeah so, yeah so there's like treetops and all that stuff up there there's so much organic material that's just like adding all that diversity and then adding the sunlight which is just like the main ingredient and productivity and everything you know on the planet earth (laughs) people weed their gardens and they weed their lawns of clover and such like people need to weed their woods yeah yeah if you think of it as as just a big garden i mean that's what it is there's just there's weed trees and there's and there's your crop trees and everything and it's just you got to go in and weed the you weed yeah you weed your gardens like why aren't we weeding our woods like (laughs) the way you got to look at it hashtag that keith weed your woods (laughs) (laughs) you you apply to, to apply these things you know, what are some other tips to just get started? What are some other hurdles even? Yeah. What are some things that get people hung up in your guys' experience? And how can you encourage people to take the right steps? I think what I see, uh, the biggest hurdle is not even money for people. It's just the time. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to hire a workout. Um, you try to make large-scale disturbances and you just One spend guy. Half, half your day yeah. fixing the chainsaw that broke. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anybody who own land, owns land like knows that there's just always double as much time to get anything done just because of maintenance and fixing the tree that fell over the road so don't be afraid to hire work out to get large scale improvements done if you have the means of doing it mm-hmm. or scale up get get your buddies yeah yeah get your hunting camp yep so there's that and then talking specifically with fire i mean you have you obviously with a fire you extend risk from just your property so you're extending your liability of doing thing of doing the practice 
you know, you're not dropping a tree on yourself with a chainsaw, you're potentially putting a flame that could go over and burn the neighbor's propane tank down. <laughs> so there's a lot of risk that starts to increase. Um, and I would never recommend anybody to just try to do fire on their own without having seen it before. And that's what we've been trying to cultivate here is a group of people that can come out. And each time we've done it, I, I think there's actually been somebody who has been here that hasn't seen fire other than a campfire. And just watching it, the way that fire works on the hill and the way that it works through the fuel differently and the conditions change. And, yeah, just, and your ecosystem too. Each little ecosystem is going to have its own behavior. Yeah. And so, so putting that experience in your head, and, and I, I, you can't buy that experience. You can't sit and watch a video and really see that very well. So that would be the first thing I would do if somebody's interested in getting into fire is just try to volunteer for somebody or go out and, you know, help friends that are burning out. Um, because then you can try to piece that together in, in my property. How can I apply this? Mm -hmm. You know, can I do it on my own or is it something where I live six hours away and I have to hire it out because I can't hit the burn window well? Um, so as far as that goes, um, doing it on your own, I mean, there's a lot of different things that you would need to do and each state's going to be totally different. But in Ohio, um, I can get into the specifics if you want. I mean, basically we have a burn ban that's March, April, May, no October, November during 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So you can't be burning during that time in Ohio unless you get a waiver of that, which you can do as a private landowner if you write a burn plan and get your fire department to sign it off. You can also do it if you have a prescribed fire manager, write a burn plan and apply for this waiver. Then there's an additional form you send into the EPA that's a notification with the type of fuels and everything, showing them that, hey, we're burning this for this specific intention. It's just, you're just adding paperwork there that if something ever were to happen, they can look back and check your plan and say, oh, they were following the conditions. It was nature. It was out of, out of your control kind yeah, of thing. It helps you theoretically, legally, yeah. I think. But we're not lawyers, so check into that all <laughs> yourself. Um, but an important thing is if you're going to hire somebody out, you got to, I mean... There's insurance involved, mm -hmm. and that's going to help a lot of people get through that hurdle of risk, I think, is, is being able to know that you're insured and that um, if that crazy thing happens that most of the time it doesn't, then yeah, like you're not, you're not losing your whole... Basically, 99% of the time it doesn't if, you, if you're doing it... Following the conditions. Following the protocol of making sure you're doing it on the right conditions... To have a safe and controlled and fire for it. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's maintenance. It's it's far from uh, light a flame and hope it goes well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is so far from that. Yep. I'd say another thing is like, um, say you got like a block, you know, a landowner block, and you got a couple buddies that you know, your neighbors that you know that have your properties. A lot of issues I would say with private land might be just like property lines are in a really weird spot for burning. Where if you get connected with other landowners, and you can just have like a big block burn, it might just be, it might make things Could safer in a certain scenario. Get yeah. the crew out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a limited size. You can only get so much area effectively and maybe would even be the prescription. You don't, we're not just willy nilly lighting everything on fire. We're burning usually pretty specific spots. No, very specific spots, mm -hmm. I'd say. Like you've got the whole thing outlined because you have a fire break around it all. It's very <laughs> specific. I mean, and some scales are bigger than others, but it's, it's definitely like this is the area mm -hmm. and we're not even letting it get one inch over onto this other yeah. side yeah it's like i know i could burn on that other side and we could do something else there but you're staying in that burn unit until mm -hmm. the fire's out in there that's it's truly a controlled fire yeah and, <laughs> and there's also 
certainly other resources out there where there's educational, like whether that be a seminar or like a class. Certainly yeah. people oh, yes. could go do stuff some like that states, too. Some states, I mean, it's a lot easier in some states to get this burn. So I have a, the burn, burn manager certificate that I got several years ago because I've had experience with wildfire out west, wildfire in Ohio, prescribed fire in Ohio. But not, not everybody can just jump into that class right away, at least in this state as it stands now. But other states, I don't know that. I'm pretty sure it's a lot easier in like down south to go get mm -hmm. that certificate. You know, you take a couple cl a class on the weekends, you get your certification, you're out there rolling, making plans, and and mm -hmm. and I think that's awesome because that allows everybody to kind of be into the man, you know, into this sort form of management. And you can have your li these little like co-ops or whatever, and everyone can have a burn manager, and you can yeah, you can jump around and do burns on yeah. properties and. There's a course in Ohio, I, I don't quote me on this, but maybe S-130, S-190, it's wildland and prescribed fire. It's put on by our fire academy up in just out of Columbus. Um, it's over a couple of weekends. You can go to that. It's like some really good course stuff. I mean, it's some sit-down stuff, like you kind of need to know kind of stuff. Um, then if possible, they always, they have some grasslands there on site that uh, you burn off on like the last the last day of the meeting, if possible, or one of the days in the training. So that's something most states would, that you are allowed to burn will have some sort of training, probably like that and it might i think that cost maybe a hundred bucks or something that's a that's a great starting point um i feel like i had to do that to be on ben's crew <laughs> but unofficially yeah. so i think something that's important to bring up is why we're burning what we're burning and what we're trying to promote and what we're trying to decrease um yesterday we burned a meadow which is mainly grasses and forbs and the goal there like larry said was to knock a lot of the woody species out and to try to promote those herbaceous species. In the woods, we have a little bit of a different goal. I mean, that's a little, that's part of what we're doing in there. But um, in a forest ecosystem, you have, the seedlings are very important. So the seedlings are hopefully what the, the overstory trees are dropping and creating. So you're trying to really cultivate this community that is similar in the understory as it is in the overstory. And we're mostly talking oak and hickory species here. Yeah, basically, dominating the landscape with that species yeah. that's your target species yep, yep. productivity because, wise you should see them yeah if the woods is oh yeah, yeah you should see a bunch of them because that's the future crop i mean that's when all these trees blow over in a tornado or something that's what's going to be po populating the new forest so in the woods you know we're taking a little bit of a different approach but we're mainly trying to control one to you know six inch ish trees we call that the we call those the mid-story trees and seedlings and saplings and we're really trying to re-sprout everything in that understory that's woody because it's all going to re-sprout but the oaks over time are going to re-sprout more aggressively than poplar maple beech black gum the things that were undesirable in our stand there because because those trees that aren't going to pop mm. are fire intolerant where an oak is fire tolerant yeah so to burn it it promotes the oak growth, yeah. which is what we want as hunters, but also like somebody who wants, you know, a property that is going to have a timber value at some point. Those are important yeah. factors as well. And that ties back in, like we were saying, with the species diversity in your woods that like it, it will continue to get worse if you do nothing about it. And since we have removed fire from the ecosystem, we were talking about those fire adapted species that like 
continue to decrease and decrease because there is no fire and mm-hmm. they it's not that they need it necessarily in all cases it's that they deal with it better than these other species mm-hmm. and like we're going to get rid of those if we don't burn so we need to keep them around so what a problem that we see all the time on tons of different properties is we're seeing more trees that are poplar maple not oak trees hickory trees that's kind of what we're trying to preserve right yep and that's yep. Ultimately, the goal in most cases for... For what we're managing with the oak ecosystems. I mean, that's... It all starts... A lot of this starts with what we've called... What the term is mid-story removal. Is taking a lot of those species out of that mid-story layer, like with a chainsaw and herbicide. They got too big. Yep, they got too big and if a a fire. fire. Yeah, so like Alex was mentioned earlier, what's an example of like a a good fire or a low-intensity fire? And you're looking at like one foot flame lengths tops in the woods you start getting above that and you're probably cooking some overstory trees so you're it's very it's you're in the grass it doesn't matter you just you you can more or less rip it through there because those are all going to sprout back as you know grassy plants the next year but in the woods you're trying to really make sure you don't nuke that overstory or damage it to the point that it set on a series of declines and dies out because those are the trees that are dropping the little babies (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so that fire may not control that mid-story that's grown in if it's been you know like zach's example of these public land areas 80 years since a fire has been in there or grazing has been in there or something that would have kept maple out of it mm-hmm. um, a fire that's going to kill those maples is also probably going to kill those big oak trees so you have there's more than one technique i guess to really get at that to oak management um, you know one fire is not going to do much Mm-hmm. it's going to still be shady when the leaves come back on yes. in the summer. Yeah, because so there's to... still the full story maple. So yep. maybe you take out the maple, leave the oak, then burn. Yep. That's kind of the progression, yep. correct? And then just start burning on a, on a certain rotation, and it's five not, to ten years. Yeah, and it's not that you don't want any of those other species right. of trees either. Because you want right? the diversity. It, right, and it, it, it's just about that different stages in that succession and that without fire you're not going to get to that last stage so we need to create that and yeah. without the but fire so w- like would you want to talk at all about like like how you would designate what areas like should be that oak stand and then what other stuff is still part of this other yeah so succession what we've focused on a lot on this property and i think makes sense in a lot of look you're looking at the historic what that site was probably historically south and west facing slopes are inherently drier, shallower soil, and more they're just flammable. More flammable, yeah. A fire would have ran up those slopes pretty easily when there's no dozers around to put it out. So the north-facing slope, because it's got more moisture, and the sun's just not beating down on it on days like today, is going to be a lot less fire intensity if it even carries a fire through it. So that is where you get into, at least around here, you get a lot more poplar, beech, black gum. Hemlock. Hemlock even, yeah. A lot of really shady basswood, shady species that like moisture a lot. And that's a whole different ecosystem. That's not somewhere we're going to be, if if we if fire does go in there, we're not going to be lighting a fire from the bottom of the hill and ripping crazy flame lengths up it because it's going to kill a lot of those species that can't mm-hmm. tolerate it. Mm-hmm. If there is any fire there, it's creeping around, or we just keep fire out of those stands for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, that's important, Alex. It's an important point. It's like those ecos, the diversity, especially when you're in the hills, a lot of that's dictated just on your slope aspect. What side of the hill are you on? It's not one size fits all. You can't just burn any area and be like, oh, it's going to turn into what I want. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you're trying to control a lot of the woody 
species, you can bring that fire window into you know a droughty late summer mm-hmm. or an early fall. Yeah, and sometimes gonna, you are trying to kill them. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. And then the energy's all up in the leaves, and you take that out, and it's going to have a really hard time bouncing back from the roots because it hasn't brought everything back down to the roots for the fall. That's a good point. We're intentionally top killing even oak trees all the time. That's part of the process with oak management. I mean, literally you have oak trees in there, but when you start getting too many of these weed species, if you will, on the particular site, you are intentionally killing every single thing there. The oak trees are re-sprouting basically from the root collar, right, Ben? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one thing that helps me understand it too, is that when maples grow in an area, for example, they're going to out-compete the oak trees because they're going to shade out because of the way their leaf structure, their the way they grow in general, they're going to shade out all the other species and therefore you're just going to get that one species in that whole area and therefore we're not getting the diversity. But when we can get these specific units, burn them, manage things specifically based off of the slope that you're on, mm-hmm. then you are creating the diversity on one ridge, for example, if you've yeah. got, you know, every side of that ridge has a different, you know, facing direction, facing slope, you manage those areas differently. Mm-hmm. All right. So this afternoon, if the sun stays out and this wind stays going just a little bit, it seems like we got conditions to actually do a timber burn. So it's an area that's pretty opened up uh, on the very, very top, but for the most part, it's oak leaf litter, tree, just deep leaf litter in an area we already disturbed. Ben, you want to kind of backtrack on just the project and then how we're using the fire on that specifically on that specific site? Yeah, so we call this area the wildlife opening. It's the first area that we cut trees on this property in 2018. So we've we're, there's a lot of sprouts that are now there's woody sprouts that are out competing the understory that we want to be more herbaceous and woody plants. Um, so we're going to put fire in the stand to control a lot of those woody sprouts, knock them back down to the ground. And then lower on the slope, we haven't actually done anything in there. So it's kind of a control site for us with, mm-hmm. with just fire. It's pretty shady, pretty close canopy. And we're going to let the fire go through there and kill and see what it does to some of those mid-story species. Because we haven't actually put the chainsaw to anywhere below this wildlife opening. So it's going to be a pretty interesting really response good to watch. Like we need this. Yeah. Because this is no chainsaw. And this is just the lowest cost option, hypothetically, fire mm-hmm. trying to do what we need and potentially with a lot of our public land and all kinds of areas need. Yeah. So again, on this one ridge, we've created one, two, three, four, basically different ecosystems in about 5.2 acres. So with one fire, it's going to respond differently in all those sites based on what we've done the past four years. So it's going to be pretty interesting. I hope it uh, stays sunny out. We can make it happen. By having this conversation, our goal is to help give people the confidence and hopefully just again get the conversation started amongst friends you guys have been super successful of of doing that i'm really proud of all the things that you guys have done as far as like getting a group together getting people excited about it and just the improvements that you guys have made on this property is really awesome to see and it's exciting to look to the future and you know visualize a world where Hunters are working together with their buddies and also their non-hunting friends and family to increase you know, the pro- productivity of the timber from all different angles. And um, along with that, if anybody is listening to this and they still feel like, man, I have all these questions, feel free to reach out to anybody at THP or any of these guys. If you need to find these guys, there's plenty of times where we've 
you know, given out your guys' information. If you get, and if you need to check the description of this podcast, you can find all that stuff there. Reach out. Don't be afraid to ask. I think that's something that sometimes we struggle with is, oh, I don't know, and I'm afraid to ask. I don't want to look stupid. Like I don't. I, I think it's just one of those things where we're all learning together. So reach out to people, talk to them, take advantage of those resources, and put the work to the landscape. And you know, let's let's start managing land more than just food plots and corn piles. Yeah. Wildlife. <laughs> hey, Wildlife production. I love that term. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks. And thanks for everybody for listening. And we'll see you on the next one.